you know, in the old days of network TV, um, they had the Friday night movie. And these days in our household, we have the Friday night download from Netflix. So tonight's download is um, on the topic of forgiveness. And um, I was teaching a, a class on forgiveness in the community hall um, uh, a while ago, about a year ago. And in that class, um, uh, unlike the retreat form, I give homework. <laughs> and, um, and this passage actually got returned in one of the homeworks that I thought was um, <laughs> really both funny and poignant. Um, it's quite short, um, and this person writes, Forgiveness given and received, releases my anger, abates my disappointment, allows me to go for a word, no longer looking back. Forgiveness would allow me to accept what is. Alas. <laughs> you know, Heather's... Heather's uh, um, um, pointing to the melodrama of our lives, <laughs> alas. You know, the attachment to, um, you know, things that actually cause suffering because they're familiar. And, and actually forgiveness can be unknown territory for all of us. And often um, we we bring this, invite this topic into the retreat at this point because as we open, you know, just like the uh, invitations of mindfulness that we open from the breath to greater and greater number of objects and we open the energy of the heart starting with ourself to our loved ones and our benefactors, our dear friends, um, the people we don't know very well in our lives. And as we turn towards the more challenging relationships, the difficult people, um, the people that we are in conflict with, often a precursor that might soften the ground is this practice of forgiveness. <clears throat> in fact, Dr. King, whom we've been invoking throughout this week together, has written, first we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. They who are devoid of the power to forgive are devoid of the power to love. That they are intertwined as practices. It takes, it takes courage and effort to look into our hearts around our capacity to forgive, around our capacity to meet difficulty, not just outside with other people, but also inside with ourselves. And it takes all of our mindfulness, all of our loving kindness, all of our compassion practice, all of these tools support the cultivation of this ground. And whether we are in the position of um, requesting forgiveness 
or offering forgiveness. You can even feel in that language, it's a relational process. I ask for your forgiveness or I offer forgiveness to you. It's not just about my experience and it's not just about yours. It's about our experience. There's a distinction in all forgiveness traditions and really forgiveness is so um, cross-cultural, so cross-human, so crossing all boundaries of spiritual tradition. All forgiveness practices make a distinction between the act which harmed and the person who initiated that harm. Forgiveness is not about condoning or redeeming or pardoning or absolving or excusing or forgetting. You know, forgive and forget. They're all different than the practice of forgiveness. These are activities that are focused on the act of harm. Forgiveness is focused on the person on the reminder that this person, even though they may have caused harm to us in our life, is still a human being. How do I, how do I, what is my attitude towards that person? Do I hold them as a human being? Do I hold them as an object to vent my frustration or anger or hurt? Do I, um, do I hold them as other? You know, I was in this debate with some um, researchers uh, studying mindfulness and <clears throat> in the demographics um, uh, section, they had all the choices of ethnicity and orientation and gender. And in some of the categories, it was other. You know, you list all the things and other. And I had, a, I had an issue with that because I never want to be called other, you know, outside of. Again, Dr. King writes, Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting on a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains a barrier to the relationship. The relationship, the relational peace of being human together. In Pali, the word forgiveness is kama, K-H-A-M-A. And it also means the earth, the ground, the ground that the Buddha touched when um, he was in his process of awakening. It is about a heart and mind that is immovable from the direction of freedom. 
that regardless of external conditions, regardless of, of external events or people, that we still incline our mind and heart towards loving kindness, mindfulness, compassion, and freedom. When you forgive me for harming you, you are aware, you are mindful that you have a choice. The choice that Heather was talking about last night, the choice of mindfulness is always what leads to more freedom and what leads to more suffering. Deciding not to harm, not to add one more drop of suffering in a world that suffers so much already. And we don't have to like the person in order to forgive them. We don't have to like a person to offer them kindness or love. I was in my um, training as a psychotherapist and we have our intern, you know, uh, in our intern group, in our training. I remember getting into this debate because one of my fellow interns <clears throat> was saying, I really like this client. And I kept, I, kept, I kept questioning, it's not about like, it's about being able to accept all of who they are, even if you don't like them. And I really feel this is the quality of metta as well, and forgiveness. That it, it's not about us liking pleasant interactions or resolutions or, or, you know, sometimes when there's a conflict, we want it to be resolved. It's not even about that. It's about allowing what's happened and what can we learn together not to replicate the harm that has been caused that feedback loop, that mindfulness always um, invites us into. Really being present for what is arising so that we can cause less harm in the future. It's not a passive. Sometimes, you know, it's char- practice is characterized as this passive activity of just accepting life as it is. And that I think is a truncated teaching. It is not just about accepting things as they are. It's about accepting things as they are in this moment in order to gain the insight and the wisdom and the compassion to transform patterns of suffering into patterns of freedom. So the formal practice of forgiveness is um, often given in three directions. Um, Forgiving the self for the harm that I've caused to myself, asking for forgiveness from others that we have harmed, and forgiving others for harming us. And I've actually added a fourth direction, which um, two days ago in the morning, Kate actually spoke to when when she said, um, she spoke to forgiving the culture. And the way that forgiving the culture, I think it was around forgiving us the messages of unworthiness in our life. 
And the way that I language it is this fourth direction is about forgiving the first noble truth. Forgiving the reality that they're suffering in this life. So in the first direction of forgiving self, the, the phrases are already posted out there. For any way I have caused harm to myself through judgment, action, self-blame, or even indifference, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed, may I forgive myself. And if I cannot do so in this moment, may I be able to forgive myself in the future. As we've been indicating and pointing to, often we are our harshest critic. We are the ones that um, judge ourselves in the most critical way. When we are sick or ill with a, you know, an infirmity, we think that we should still, you know, go to that job and white knuckle our way through because of all of our obligations. When we feel that we have an agitated meditation period that we're not doing it right. Or when we feel angry or depressed or even discouraged that we start blaming ourselves and getting, trying to get over it. And we even feed those, those messages by getting angry at the anger or depressed at the depression. Just this, this aspect of all it is is the aversive mind. And yet we believe it. We believe these messages that we offer ourselves. And when we have, you know, pain, whether it's physical or emotional, that something is wrong, that generally speaking, it's that the, the thing that's wrong is me, that I am wrong, that I am worthless. And we keep repeating as, you know, in different ways when we're, when we're speaking to you, pointing towards not judging even the judgment itself. Whether it's you're sitting with a breath, whether the judgment comes up in the metta practice, can you simply be with that experience? Because in the moment of not judging the judgment, you're practicing kindness. You're actually, you're actually beginning that practice. And we keep repeating this message in different ways over and over again. You know, it may feel redundant or repetitive, but actually that's how we learn. Through repetition, through coming back to the breath, through coming back to the phrases or the images that you might use. What we are doing is reconditioning our experience. We are inclining the mind and heart over and over again and going against the stream of how our patterns have been inclined in a different direction to judge ourselves. 
So no wonder it comes up over and over again. It's just the nature of, of the path. This meeting the moment for what it is, even if it is the self-criticism or the self-judgment, is an allowing that is the energy of forgiveness. Just allowing myself to be completely who I am, allowing myself to be caught and learn from, not, not feed the judgment that, that, becomes, um, that becomes an identity of I'm a bad person or I'm not worthy. But if I've made a mistake, to feel it to, in order to learn what to do next. Because in my reality, I don't learn from what I already know. I learn actually from my mistakes. And, and even I learn in the ways that I've harmed. Because if I ask for forgiveness, I actually learn how not to do it again. When, you know, life gets hard and difficult for all of us, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, life gets hard and difficult. It does not mean that our hearts have to be hard and difficult. Our hearts are not dependent on external conditions. Sylvia has said that um, that, the, that the suffering that we experience in feeding pain in our life is optional. That second noble truth is optional. Just because life is hard and difficult does not mean that we have to respond in the same way. One of the things that supports the, the forgiving ourselves for being human, the forgiving ourselves for making a mistake, for even harming, is recognizing our own merit, recognizing our worthiness to be in this life. That was the, um, the, the pointing, the direction of that quote from Margaret Cho that I offered that first uh, morning, I think, around self-esteem is truly an act of revolution. It truly is an act of breaking patterns of this culture. Self-esteem is not self-attachment. It's not, this is not about ego, which sometimes we equate it to. It is about recognizing the goodness that all of us have done in this life. Letting yourself feel how good you are as a, as a living being, as a human being. Appreciation of yourself and all of your efforts, even when it gets messy. That even when you fall into a mess, you fall into a beautiful mess. 
Because more than that, you are a beautiful person. And sometimes, you know, we pick up the pieces um, that, that feel like a breakdown, that we break down in, and, and, and fall apart. But sometimes we need that in order to break through, in order to break through the patterns of our unconsciousness, the breakdown and breakthrough of who we think we really are. Who would you be and what would you do if you were never, if you never felt separated from your own goodness or worthiness or wholesomeness? Who would you be if you were always aware of this natural capacity of your heart to be kind? What a wonderful exploration. There's a story in the 90s, I think, when many of the senior teachers went over to Dharamsala and meet with the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and they were talking about the challenges of, of teaching the Dharma in the West. And um, uh, um, they were saying that there's this, this whole issue of low self-esteem and, and self-judgment and, the, and what, we've been, what we've been talking about. And, and so His Holiness and his translator were going back and forth and translating the conversation and then they're translating again and translating again. And finally, His Holiness understood the concept of low self-esteem <laughs> and turned to the audience and said, don't believe it. It's not true. <laughs> I think that is really inspiring to know that there is a culture in this human plane that doesn't have this conditioning. It's something, you know, to aspire to. A story from the life of um, Greg Louganis, who is the mixed-race diver in the Olympics a few decades ago. I want to thank all the bullies in my life, the ones who called me retard, sissy boy, faggot, those who threatened to throw punches at me and took my lunch away at the bus stop, those who actually threw punches at me and rubbed my face in the asphalt, my dad who whipped me with his belt until I did a dive I was too scared to do in my regular practice, and the man who raped me at knife point whom I stayed with for another six years. They all helped shape me, and without those experiences, I could not be the person I am today. I had to learn to forgive myself, and then find it in my heart to forgive them, even bless the light in them, no matter how dim that light was. In 1988, at the Olympic Games in Seoul, on my ninth dive in the men's three-meter springboard preliminaries, I struck my head on the board, Going into that Olympic event, I was the favorite to win the gold medal. But in that split second, I became the underdog. I was scared, 
having been diagnosed as HIV positive six months prior and aware I was in a country that would have deported me if my status were known. It was what followed that made me realize the strength and power I had within me. I was taken to a room off the pool deck. I firmly believe you do not achieve greatness on your own. I drew inspiration from my coach and from an Indiana boy, Ryan White, a friend who suffered from hemophilia and contracted HIV from his clotting factor. He went on to become a national spokesperson for people with HIV, working tirelessly before his 1990 AIDS-related death to make us visible and get increased government funding. He was a fighter, and in that moment, I needed to find the fighter in me. I set the board, and my dive was announced. I could hear an audible gasp from the audience. It was a similar dive to that which I struck my head, a reverse one and a half with three and a half twists. Only 22 minutes had passed between the moment I struck my head on the board and the execution of the dive. I took a breath went forward, trusting my training, my coach, and a young boy in Indiana, and I did the dive. And as it turned out, it was the highest scoring dive of that Olympic Games. I went on to repeat the dive during the finals and took home the gold. I never would have had that kind of strength and fortitude to succeed without my life's experiences. And I mostly attribute my strength in that moment, to my tormentors. But it was only after I had stopped playing the victim role that I truly began living a life of freedom. I found the will to learn and follow the path that I was put on this earth to follow. The experiences in which I felt less than were the gems of my life because I survived. Each of us, has a hero inside of us and a uniqueness that we may not see at first because we are so concerned with fitting in. We may have a different walk or talk or a different way of learning or a different physical appearance that doesn't match others' expectations or a different way of expressing ourselves. In time, my own experience I learned to celebrate my uniqueness, cherish who I am as a human being, and act out of love and compassion for my fellow human beings. And to borrow my mom's saying, I make everywhere I go better because I was there. I practice it every day and live it to the best of my ability. We talk about wise speech a lot in the precepts, in the Eightfold Path. But the most important things we say in our life are what we say to ourselves. It is an opportunity to reaffirm ourselves with self-love as opposed to self-judgment. I make everywhere I go better because I was there. That is the goodness, recognizing our goodness.
The second direction of forgiveness is asking for forgiveness. For any way that I have caused harm to you, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed, I ask for your forgiveness. Acknowledging our own imperfections, our our humanity. There is no humanity that's perfect. Acknowledging that, being open to that, letting go of the perfection that we wish to be. And as we turn kindness towards that, that humanity, there's a vulnerability that arises. Again, to invoke um, the words of Sylvia, uh, I heard her once just pose, you know how she just sometimes throws out a question and it's, it feels, you know, like so spontaneous and it just goes so deep. She just said one night, um, what would it be like if everyone in the world were vulnerable? And it's been, you know, it's been an inquiry for me an exploration of, of an invitation into that, that, that kindness to offer the world my vulnerability, to show and own and acknowledge my own imperfections. We all have received injuries and we all have caused harm in this life. One of the universal teachings that parents give to children and, and as a grandparent, I give to my grandchildren when they've made a mistake or they've hurt others is, how would you feel if it happened to you? You know, and that's, that's the classic, I mean, that's the parental teaching, but it reflects the classic teaching of just exchanging self for other. How would it feel if it happened to you? It seems so, um, um, you know, uh, trivial or, or ordinary, but it actually reflects the Satipatthana Sutta. It, it reflects the, the teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness when, when, when the Sutta is written, the noble ones contemplate, abide contemplating internally. They abide contemplating externally. They abide contemplating both internally and externally. This is the exchange of self and other. Knowing, understanding, being aware of, and being compassionate towards the impact that I have on others, on you, and knowing the impact that you have on me and learning, especially from our mistakes. Sometimes this, this, this practice of exchange of self for other in regards to asking for forgiveness, um, can, there's a compassion practice that can support it. And the phrases are, just like me, this person is seeking happiness in their life. 
just like me, this person is trying to end suffering in their life. Just like me, this person has known sadness, suffering, illness, and pain. Just like me, this person is seeking to get what they need. Just like me, this person is learning from life. And it makes me more open to be vulnerable. And when I've harmed, I can take that, take that initiative and responsibility and ask for forgiveness. Donald in his first talk was talking about leading from the heart, noticing what the heart is, is, is pulling you towards. I was in, um, I have a very dear close friend and um, a while ago I did something. I'm not exactly, even to this day, I'm not exactly sure what I did but there was a fracture in the relationship. And you know how you, you uh, try to make up or, or ask for forgiveness and they're not in that place. And that's hard, especially because I didn't know what I, I mean, I had a sense, but I didn't know exactly what I did. And yet I was still really, um, I still really valued the friendship. And so, um, and I could feel my own resentment coming up of, you're not letting me forgive you? You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not giving me forgiveness? You know, and what I had, I, what I found myself having to do is, is living the request for forgiveness. You know, like showing up even when they weren't that interested in seeing me. Not to cross boundaries, but just, you know, this light presence that, uh, you know, whether it's a periodic email or a, a Christmas card, and what shifted it was I was traveling and I treated the relationship as I would have treated the relationship if the fracture had not occurred. And because cause I saw something that, that was the perfect gift. And so I just sent it, even though there was this complexity in our relationship. They actually never have articulated what happened and they never actually offered me that forgiveness that I was asking for. But we are closer than we've ever been. And so sometimes, you know, just like metta is not necessarily about the phrases, it's not necessarily literally about a certain thing that we do, you actually have to live into it. It's a nonverbal experience. It's, it's an intention that we bring over and over again. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We bring our intention and let go of the outcome.
The third direction of forgiveness is forgiving others that have harmed us, which is often the most difficult place because it's sometimes the most charged. For any way that you have caused harm to me, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed, may I forgive you. And if I cannot do so in this moment, may I be able to do so in the future. Can you even feel in that last line, if I cannot do so in this moment, may I be able to do so in the future? This is an incremental practice. It doesn't expect us to be anywhere. It doesn't expect us to be perfect. It just invites us over and over again into what will create more freedom in our life. Noticing where forgiveness is not possible and yet maintaining that intention. You know, that, that sword that our whole life balances on, that image that, that it, our whole life balances on the sword of intention. That intention is so important because that's the, 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 the keel of the, the ship that we're living. Who do we see ourselves to be in this life? There's a passage from this book, Shantaram, that is a very melodramatic book. Uh, it's, about, um, uh, it's about a guy who is caught in, I, I read it, I was coming out of monastic life and I needed, um, I needed an es- sort of a fantasy escape and I just found this book in the, in the airport in, in Thailand and I got mesmerized by it. But it's because it also, uh, because it's set in India and, and in Southeast Asia, it had all this dharma in it even though it's about this murder mystery and drug dealing and <laughs> gun running. And, and, um, and so the protagonist, who is, I guess, this criminal, um, and, and gets you know, incarcerated. Um, but there's this passage that really struck me. It took me a long time and most of the world to learn what I know about love and hate and the choices we make. But the heart of it came to me in an instant when I was chained to the wall and being tortured. I realized somehow through the screaming in my mind that even in that shackled, bloody helplessness, I was still free. Free to hate the men who were torturing me or free to forgive them. It doesn't sound like much, I know. But in the flinch and the bite of the chain, when it's all you've got, that freedom is the universe of possibility. And the choice you make between hating and forgiving can be the story of your life. I love finding Dharma in like unexpected places. Freedom, freedom is to be had. 
forgiving is not something that we, we give to someone else. It's something that we give to ourselves. It's about our own freedom. So in that, that forgiveness class, I had asked people to write, you know, um, their experience, their past experiences of this area of forgiveness, whether they were successful or not in their minds. And this person wrote, 21 years ago, I was denied a new position at work, not because I wasn't qualified, but because my boss had decided to open the position to the new college graduates. This meant that I was expected to train another person for the position that I wanted. Five years later, I got the position I wanted because the management had changed, but I had spent many hours dreaming of revenge. I let go of revenge and moved on to holding a grudge. (laughs) I was lucky he worked across the country so I didn't see him often because I had a hard time being civil for the rest of the time I worked there, another six years. I let it go at that point. I released the pain, but I still dreamed about it. Now, 21 years later, I still have not forgiven him. I doubt he has even thought about it after the first six months. Saying you forgive someone can help them if they're feeling guilty over a past action. However, it is more likely to help you release the revenge and the pain to free up your psychic energy for other more productive things. My guess is that I have spent over 2,000 hours over the years on this issue. It takes courage to forgive. It takes courage to even write what they wrote, to be able to acknowledge and to forgive oneself, to learn what will lead to freedom now for me. So as we turn towards forgiveness and, and, and uh, offering loving kindness to our more difficult people in our lives, the more challenging people, Again, this incremental practice invites us not to choose the person that has caused the most harm in our life to us. Not to be so um, task-oriented or, or goal-specific. But really, to choose someone that has caused a little harm, especially if you're newer to the practice. To develop, to develop the capacity for the heart to open, instead of just expecting the heart to be open. Cultivating and strengthening in this incremental way, there is a tipping point that you might experience. And that forgiveness is not an energy that's just about our personal personal lives or our personal interactions because as we've been pointing towards and supporting and encouraging you to explore is that 
your transformation changes the world around you. You know, that, that image of the stone dropping into the pool, radiating in all directions. So this is a story um, that was in the Atlantic and it's about uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton's um, tenure in the Senate. In the Senate, uh, I don't know how many people, I didn't know about this until I read this, but there's a um, spiritual group that meets every Wednesday morning in the Senate chambers. It's a prayer group. And, um, and it's pretty much Christian and maybe even leaning on the fundamentalist side. Um, the roster of the regular participants has included such notable conservative names as Brownback, Santorum, Nichols, and Enzi. Then in 2001, just after a new class of senators was sworn in, another name was added to the list, Hillary Rodham Clinton. One spring Wednesday, a few months into the term, Senator Sam Brownback's turn came, Brownback's turn came to lead the group. He rose, intending to talk about a recent cancer scare. But as he stood before his colleagues, Brownback spotted Clinton and was overcome with the influence to change the subject of his testimony. He said, I came here today prepared to share about this experience in my life that caused great suffering, the result of which deepened my faith. But I'm overcome now with only one thought. He confessed to having hated Clinton and having said derogatory things about her. He then turned to her and asked, Mrs. Clinton, will you forgive me? Clinton replied that she would and that she appreciated the apology. It was an extraordinary moment, one member told me. This repentance fostered an unlikely relationship that yielded political bounty. Clinton and Brownback went on to co-sponsor a measure protecting refugees fleeing from sexual abuse and another to study the effects of, on children of violent video games and television shows. Brownback said, that morning helped me make, that morning helped make our working relationship. It brought me close to someone I did not ever imagine I would become close to. That's amazing to happen in our Senate. To know that that's possible in our Senate chambers gives me a little bit of hope. <laughs> Again, as, as Heather was mentioning last night, this organicity of of our, our kindness practice, this, the, the opening and the closing, the mollusk, the, the ebb and the flow, that forgiveness is not a destination that we get to. It is not, it is not an end point. So we can open and feel forgiving in one moment. And in the future, it may not be quite so. The heart may contract in order to rejuvenate, in order to gain resources. And when you feel more resourced, 
you come back to that intention to deepen and maybe even have the possibility in spite of the injury, in spite of the harm of surpassing the functioning that you had previous to your injury that the forgiveness process can actually allow us to live into our fullest potential in a way that we wouldn't have been able to without that. My father, um, the, the year before he passed, um, was, was, was frail and we, were, we knew that he was you know, um, failing, but uh, he went to a couple of family gatherings, one of which was my cousin's seventieth um, birthday, and and I have an and 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 I have a cousin who is very was very difficult. She now has Alzheimer's, but um, she was very difficult. And um, at this at this gathering, I think my father was ninety one, something like that, and um, he was like he was appalled at the behavior of this cousin and uh, said to me, I do not want to see her again. I do not ever want to see her again. At no family gathering do I want to see her again. Okay, okay, okay. So I knew that and so I sort of protected him and and um, in the September of that year, and he passed away the following February, I think that he was prescient in, in some way. Because he hardly ever did anything for my mother's birthday, but in that September he wanted to do something for my mother's birthday and organize a family gathering. And he gave me the names to invite. And sure enough, on this list was this cousin that he said not to include ever again. And I looked at him, and I and and um, he looked at me, and I pointed to the name, and he said, "What can I do? I'm too old. I have to let go." <laughs> and then he said something interesting. He said, "Don't wait till you're 91 to learn this. Learn it now." And I actually think in that process of letting go, of forgiving, of, of letting it be, it's part of one of the reasons why his passing was so peaceful, so soft, so, yeah, gentle. I want to get to the fourth direction of forgiveness. 
forgiving the pain of life, the reality that there is a first noble truth. For any way that this situation has caused harm to me or other beings, directly or indirectly, may I feel the kindness of forgiveness. May I allow the first noble truth to be a part of life. Being profoundly allowing of how things are in this moment, even when the 10,000 sorrows arise. Of course, we would not design the world the way it is. (laughs) Of course, with its suffering, with the war, with the conflict, with the racism, with the, with the oppression, with the abuse, the violence. Of course we would not design the world the way it is. And yet this is the life that is arising. Can we learn how to live into it, to be gentle, to be kind. And in that way, let go of and forgive all of the things of how we think it should be. Getting out of the way of our life and letting the life be lived. I was teaching on the East Coast and had an interaction with a woman and Um, she wrote me this um, about this very topic of, of how much suffering there is in life. Everybody suffers, I see that. And yet, losing a child unexpectedly after having spent the better part of this life trying to be a good parent brought me to my knees in realizing how important these teachings really are to living one precious moment at a time. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. In that short sentence, going from such intense grief to the possibility of just allowing it to be moment to moment, She shared some words that her son Jonathan had written before he passed away. And she wrote, if you find the Dharma in my son's words and would like to share them, I would consider it a blessing, an honor, a tribute to the short yet beautiful life this young man lived. So Jonathan wrote, We can let go of self-pity and bathe in the belief that nothing is possible with the help of a well-exercised imagination. We can let go of all the what-ifs and why-me's and nobody knows of our constitutions except the fact, like it or not, we are alive. We are moving. We are creating a vacuum through which time will not let us escape. 
reverent or not, we must accept the beauty of this. Like it or not, we are alive. We must accept the beauty of this. There is freedom in those words from both mother and son. The forgiveness practice can be really hard, really painful. And so the invitation is to be kind to the kindness practice itself, to hold these heart practices with tenderness, not to expect perfection. I often share this little mantra that I use in my own practice. If I can't be loving or forgiving in this moment, can I be kind? If I can't be kind in this moment, can I be non-judgmental? If I can't be non-judgmental in this moment, can I not cause harm? And if I cannot not cause harm, can I cause the least harm possible? that helps me because even in my imperfections, even in my failures, I can sense how I'm trying my best to incline the heart in the direction of freedom. And that's, that's the best I can do. when our awareness of what is arising in our life, regardless of how difficult it is, is met with these heart energies of awareness and compassion, friendliness, forgiveness, allowing. It, as we say over and over again, it not only changes our lives, but it changes our relationships in the world and it changes our world. In 1995, conservationists were about to close a 10,000 acre ranch in Eastern Oregon and convey it to the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. Just six weeks before the closing, project manager for the Trust of Public Land got a call from a member of the Nez Perce Nation, Jamie Pinkham. Jamie relates that this piece of property contained a cave in which their ancestral leader, Chief Joseph, was born. At the end of the last great war between the U.S. Calvary and an Indian nation, Chief Joseph had made his famous statement, Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more. The Nez Perce had had very little money, but a whole lot of history and connection to that land. The conversation changed both men. However, that personal transformation was insufficient to heal what had occurred to an Indian nation over generations of oppression. So they started two years of complex negotiations which triggered impacts across many communities in the area. 
one can quickly imagine the value of this effort to the Nez Perce people. But what did it ask of the white ranchers who had come to dominate this land since before the times of the Indian Wars? For a people who were forcibly removed from their land five generations ago, becoming a good neighbor required incredible acts of forgiveness and compassion. The return of the tribe to their precious lands proved transformational to others. From that forgiveness, the largely white community of Enterprise, Oregon, felt the same lessons and started thinking and acting differently. The community became deeply divided over the appropriateness of the high school mascot called the Savages. Armed guards were required at the Board of Education meetings. And in the end, it was the vote of the students who prevailed and the community began to sandblast the Indian symbol off the school's walls. In June of 1997, the Trust of Land of public land was able to convey to the Nez Perce Nation 10,300 acres in the heart of the, its ancestral homeland in Northeast Oregon. It was 120 years after Chief Joseph and his people were driven from their lands in 1877. Three years later, the Nez Perce entered into a remarkable partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Cattlemen's Association to reintroduce the wolf. Three years later, after that, came the most amazing change of all, their ability to deal morally and practically with one of the most difficult issues of the West, the control of water. The Nez Perce joined with white ranchers and irrigators to voluntarily reduce the amount of water flowing to ranches so that salmon could be restored to local rivers. An initiative that shares control of the river and makes partners with the salmon. There is deep pain in this world and there can be deep healing even beyond what we think might be possible. Healing not just about our interpersonal relationships, not just about our cultural relationships, but also with the animal kingdom and the wholeness of life, connecting us with that place, that underlying interconnection of the universal family, all beings in all directions. The suffering of wanting things to be a certain way asks, why me? Why do I have this pain in my life? The heartfulness of forgiveness asks, who else? Who else can live this beautiful, maybe painful, but always precious life that has been given to us? Who else can move towards forgiving this first noble truth that there is suffering? None of us would be here today without 
all of our lived experiences. Every single joy, every single sorrow that we've lived has pointed to this moment in time. That is beauty. That is incredible. And this beauty, in the midst of whatever adversity or difficulty or challenges that have arisen, by another name, can be called freedom. This is the great journey that we're on. And the Buddha said that he would not teach that which we could not do. And that means that freedom is possible. May it be so for all of us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.